KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. Thursday, Thursday's Shir, the series on redemptive sketches with Harav Moshe Tarigan. Many feel uncomfortable with uh, seeing the events of our return to Eretz Yisrael as part of our Kaddish Baruch Hu's Geula, as Reishat Smichas Geula Seinu, because of our partnership with secular Israelis, with secular Zionists, with Jews who have betrayed the traditions of Har Sinai, the traditions of Torah Mitzvahs. I mentioned in a previous year that just because the proxies or agents of redemption are unpredictable or non-conventional or unlikely agents does not necessarily render the process a non-redemptive process. And I provided several snapshots from Jewish history where Kodesh Baruch Hu redeems Am Yisrael, even though they're undeserving or unworthy, for all sorts of ulterior reasons, be it to protect the sanctity and presence of his name, to create a defensible, durable state for the Jewish people, or to restore Jewish sovereignty. To a degree, the emergence of secular Zionism as a movement may be seen, in my opinion should be seen, not as a deviation or a miscarriage of history, where nationalism replaces religion, but as part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's master plan of Jewish history and of Jewish identity. The Pasuk in the end of the Tochacha, Perak Membeis of Sefer Vayikra and Parshas Bichukosai, after outlining the very brutal and sad, tragic events which will occur if we betray or abandon the mitzvahs, Sakharish Baruch, who ultimately has compassion, remembers his chosen people. I remember the covenant of Yaakov. Ultimately, Hashem says, I remember that special love and affection which I experienced with the Abbas, and not just a love and an affection, but a faith and a commitment which was converted into a covenant. It's a covenant which binds HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kivayacha, which binds Am Yisrael. I will remember that covenant, the Brisi Yaakov, Brisi Yitzchak, Brisi Avraham. And I will have mercy upon my people, restore them, and redeem them. But the Pasuk concludes, Brisi Yaakov, Brisi Yitzchak, Brisi Avraham, Ezkar, Viharetz Ezkar. There seems to be a separate bris, a separate covenant that Hashem has with Am Yisrael, separate memory that surrounds land. HaKadosh Baruch Hu desires that our religious identity, our relationship with Him, be one which spans the values and lifestyles of the Avos. And we recreate the experience of the Avos by adhering to their lifestyles in our own manner, as well as a religious commitment which expresses itself through land and nation. And ideally HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants our bris, our covenantal relationship, the interface between a human being and a Kaddish Baruch Hu, between Am Yisrael and a Kaddish Baruch Hu, to be built on the lifestyle of Avos, morality, ethics, Torah, mitzvahs, obedience, Kabbalah's Malchus Shemayim, the Avos didn't have mitzvahs per se in the manner that we have, but certainly the notion of commandment and obedience was a very compelling one to them, as well as land and nation, this national historic identity that's so central to Jewish consciousness and to religious consciousness. 
But the Rabbanu Shalom in his infinite wisdom also knows and knew that history would empty many Jews of their ability to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a purely religious manner. History would literally beat Judaism out of many Jews. After 2,000 years, unfortunately, most Jews are unable, given the challenge and the brute force of the historical odyssey, the historical journey, they're unable to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the classic manner of Torah or mitzvot, Maisen Tovim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a second and separate, almost autonomous covenant. The capacity for a Jew to belong to the Jewish experience, to be part of a covenant solely through land and nationhood. This is the covenant of nationalism that HaKadosh Baruch Hu established really from the dawn of time. It is a common error that Avram was the first person, the first immigrant to Eretz Yisrael. He sought, he, 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 he launched a journey to move from Haran to Eretz Yisrael. The truth is that the first Zionist was not Avram Avinu. The first Zionist was his father Terach. Terach initiates the journey from Orkastim, intending to travel to the land of Canaan in the end of Parshish Noach. By, as fate would have it, Tarach dies on his way to Eretz Yisrael. He dies in Haran, and Avram basically continues Tarach's journey. He is summoned with new mission by Kadosh Baruch Hu, but basically Tarach has some instinct, some Zionist instinct, that drives him towards Eretz Yisrael. This year is being taped. Um, the week before Purim, Tuf Shin Samach Zion. This week we experienced the very sad passing of a great luminary in biblical studies in Eretz Yisrael. Rav Mordechai Breuer, Zeich was really instrumental in, re- in establishing new ways to study Tanakh, very much a part of this revival of Tanakh learning in Eretz Yisrael. And his most famous sefer is called Pirkei Maadals. And in the sefer Pirkei Maadals, on the section of Avram and Terach, I don't have the sefer in front of me now, he really establishes this notion that Terach starts the process. Terach begins the journey. Terach is not an Oved Hashem in the classic ritualistic sense. In fact, on the night of the Seder, the night of the Haggadah, when we begin our assessment of Jewish history on an embarrassing tone, Maschil Begnus and Messiah Meshavach, so we begin by remarking that our origins are in paganism. Our forefathers, prior to Avram themselves, worshipped Avodah Terach Avram. We quote a passage in Yeshua, but most of us probably are familiar with Terach's idolatrous past from all the stories surrounding Avram smashing the idols and guarding the idols. So Terach is a pagan worshipper who knows no sense of obedience to a transcendent monotheistic God, and yet he feels a spark of, of belonging to a nation that he may be instrumental in forming, starting a people of a special land, of a special chosen historical destiny. HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates this passion within the Jewish heart, this covenant of Haaretz Ezkor, independent of the covenant which is pivoted upon a lifestyle similar to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And throughout history, there are moments in which Jews are unable, unwilling, to participate in the broader covenant of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov but they're still part of the Jewish experience, and by definition, they're still part of Hashem's army, of Hashem's people, because of this 
nationalistic identity of state and of peoplehood. It's a fascinating, fascinating medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, Parsha Chavhei, Medrash Gimel. Rabbi Yitzchak Bar Simon is commenting on a pasuk in Devarim in Parshas Re'eh. That's probably Ekev, excuse me. Acharei Hashem Melokichem Telechel. You should follow Hashem. Now this is a classic quandary for Chazal, interpreting this pasuk, following Hashem. How do you follow Hashem? Hashem is infinite. Hashem is uh, unreachable. What does it mean to follow Hashem? So there are various options proposed throughout Chazal to almost rectify or, or, or justify this pasuk. Acharei Hashem Melokichem Telechel. But this Medrash in Vayikra Rabbah urges us to imitate Hashem. Now typically we imitate Hashem by our moral behavior. Known in Latin as imitatio Dei, to imitate the Creator. To be compassionate and caring and giving. But this Medrash has us imitating Hashem in a very, very different way. Hashem created His world and the first thing He did was to plant and to build he built this world and he started planting in this world. Gan Eden. Avatem, the Medrash says. Kishatem nichnasim laretz, when you enter the land, you are charged with imitating Hashem. Lo titasku ela bematatchila. You should begin by planting as God began by planting. That's the sum total of our desire to be like a Kodesh Baruch to plant trees. So many other areas in which we want to meet our Creator and, and imitate Him, moral, religious, plant trees. The secret of this Madrash lies in understanding the term Acharei. Acharei means following God, being drawn after God. When we describe our ideal posture with the Ravon Shalom, we would certainly not propose the word Acharei to describe that posture, the way we stand with Hashem. In fact, if anything, the inverse is true. We strive for a state of lifne Hashem. A famous Pasuk, which punctuates our Yom Kippur experience, Ki vayom hazeh yechaper alechem, litareschem, mikolachatosechem, lifne Hashem titaru, v'achaltem sham lifne Hashem elokichem. We want to stand in Hashem's presence, in front of Him, Literally in front of his face, obviously that can't be applied in the literal sense of Kodesh Baruch but Kivayacho, face to face, interacting, loving, obeying, communicating, identifying with the ideal state of affairs. That's the goal. One could call the goal of Zvekos, the goal of clinging to the Rabbana Shalom. But what happens if a person is incapable of that posture, of that spatial relationship of Lifne Hashem? Rabboni Shalom carves out a secondary option. And he calls it Acharei Hashem, where there isn't a face-to-face, so to speak, identification or association. You're being drawn ineluctably, and in some cases, unconsciously, unknowingly, but you're following, you're in the way, you're in the path, you're Acharei Hashem. Reminiscent of the very first uh, couple of psukim in Shir Hashirim, Mashecheni, Parak Aleph, Pasek Dalet, Mashecheni Acharecha we were drawn out into the desert and we had to follow the Rabboni Shalom, even though many members of Amisal maybe weren't so interested or didn't really understand where they were heading, but they just followed because the Redeemer was calling them. 
Secular Zionism may be described as Acharei Hashem. By planting and building, literally, the content, the instructions of that medrash, by planting this land and building this land and defending this land and restructuring this land, they're participating in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's master resettlement and rebuilding of Eretz Yisrael. In many cases, unknowingly, in many cases, knowingly, but without the classic religious language which we apply to our religious experience, but in some cases even unknowingly or in, in a non-religious setting. But this commitment to land, to peoplehood, to nation, places them Acharei Hashem, places them in Eretz Yisrael, in the wake of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in Hashem's presence. And this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's design for history. HaKadosh Baruch Hu challenges the religious person, the religious Jew, to transcend his mortality, to serve him, obey mitzvot, to build a highly cultivated and sculpted religious self to interact with HaKadosh Baruch Hu across many, many different levels, through many conduits. A very stiff but ennobling religious challenge. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu also realizes that inevitably there will be Jews who will be unable to reach those levels of religious calling and religious mission. So the Rabbani Shalom establishes various, one could call them safety valves or safety nets. Experiences within religion that are not ideal, or don't encompass the ideal form of Avodah Hashem, but still preserve Jews as part of either the religious experience or the Jewish national experience. Very interesting Gemara on a different note, but on a similar similar design. The Gemara in Shabbos describes Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son as hermits in a cave for 12 years, hiding from the Roman Caesar. After 12 years, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son of Elazar emerge, and they witness pastoral scenes of people working, planting, harvesting. These two people have spent 12 years in a cave learning Torah all day. Their food was miraculously provided by some local trees, of trees. And they become so incensed that people can work. They can abandon an eternal calling of Torah and perform menial tasks of transient nature. Anywhere they looked, they burnt people, they incinerated people. Such was their rage, such was their anguish at sensing this um, uh, distorted way to lead their life. So Abbas Kohli emerged from heaven and said, I don't need you out of the cave to destroy my world. Go back into the cave until you obviously recognize that not everyone is capable of Torah study all day. They went back into the cave, this time for 12 months. They came out again, and they sense a similar disappointment. Rib Shimon is a little bit more mature, not more mature, but more understanding than his son, and he tries to justify it, and somehow a story occurs which helps them sort of make sense of this whole scene in front of them that people are abandoning this ideal form of Avodah Hashem of constant Torah study. What do they see? They see an old man who's holding two hadasim during Ben Hashemash, two stalks or sticks of a hadas tree, and he's a hadas bush, and he's running 
And they ask him, where are you going? He says, I'm running for Chvot Shabbos. They obviously were Hadassim stalks, which were meant to cause aroma or beauty or create a floral arrangement for Shabbos. And they ask him, well, wouldn't one be enough? He says, well, one is Kineget Zachar, one is Kineget Shamar, the two terms to describe Shabbos in the Luchos Rishonos and Luchos Achronos, respectively. So one Hadas stick corresponds to Zachar, one Hadas stick corresponds to Shamar. By the way, this is the source for the fact that the mitzvah of Adlachas Neros on Shabbos is a base of two. People have a minute to light one candle for each family member, but the base mitzvah is to light two candles, one Kineget Zachar, one Kineget Shamar. And Roshim Bayochai, having digested this scene, turns to his son and says, Amalei Lebrei, Chazi Kamachavivin Mitzvah Yisrael. Look how wonderful their attitude is towards mitzvahs. Somehow this mollifies or placates his son's ire. What's happening here? Why is this, why is this event, seeing this old man carrying Hadas buds, instrumental in mollifying or soothing Rebbe Lazar's anger? Shabbos is a mitzvah which is just one of those safety nets. Shabbos is a brisk between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Am Yisrael. And even Jews who are unable or unwilling to obey and to adhere to the entire sum of mitzvahs, not to justify that, but even if that's the most they can accomplish, we have a fundamental difference in our mind. we we discriminate fundamentally between someone who keeps Shabbos and someone that doesn't keep Shabbos. Someone who keeps Shabbos is called a Shomer Shabbos, and more or less, more or less, we treat that person as an Orthodox Jew. Again, it's not as simple as it sounds, but the term Shomer Shabbos has become almost a catchphrase for a person who is Orthodox, a person who is Dati. Whereas if they've sunk in so low that they don't even adhere to the baseline of Shemir Shabbos, then they're no longer called a Shomer Shabbos, and that phrase, he's not a Shomer Shabbos, she's not a Shomer Shabbos, carries cultural, national, religious connotations far beyond whether they keep Shabbos. It's an attitude and a posture that we take towards them. HaKadosh Baruch Hu establishes Shabbos as one of those covenantal safety nets to capture, to preserve, to protect Jewish, and in this case, religious identity, even when it can't be cultivated and it can't be perfected or nurtured as it should be. And this is part of what I believe Rabbi Shimon Yochai and his son partake of, what they witness. They, they have these high-minded, rarefied standards, high-minded, rarefied standards of what it takes to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's very, very, um, almost elitist positions to learn Torah all day something which most people are not capable of. And their initial exit from the cave is a, is a failed exit because they pour out their wrath, they, they incinerate people they see, and then they come back with a slightly different attitude that evidently Hashem creates layers, and He desires people striving, people aspiring to the highest level of Avodah Hashem, but He understands that people will not all be capable of the same level, and He carves out different levels. And when they saw this old man and the love he showed for Shabbos, I think something struck a chord. Some chord was struck in their own consciousness. That as long as people are keeping Shabbos, and as long as they're keeping mitzvahs, chavivin le mitzvahs, as typified by his zeal for Shabbos, even if they're incapable or incapable of learning an entire day, 
they're not to be excluded or, or belittled, but rather to be glorified and celebrated. Not as the ideal, but as a legitimate expression of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Ratzon, not again as the ideal expression of Hashem's Ratzon, but this framework Hashem creates for people to belong, in this case belong to the religious experience, even if they are incapable of a comprehensive obedience to mitzvahs. I think a similar experience can be discerned in the mitzvah of bris milah, a very famous medrash. That Avram stands by the gates of Gehenom, and if he notices a person passing with a bris milah, the medrash tells us he yanks him out and sends him back up to Shemayim. Is this what we aspire to, to be retrieved from Gehenom simply because of our bris milah? Hopefully we plan a lifetime of Torah, mitzvahs, and mice and tovim, and stock us so that Whatever our shortcomings are, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will show us in Mitzvah Shem Rachamim. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu also realizes that there will, peop- there will be people who are unable to achieve or to even aspire to those levels of Avodah Hashem. So he creates this covenant, this bris milah, that as long as a person has a bris milah, he still belongs to the Jewish religious experience. And Avraham can yank him from the lineup entering Gehenom and restore him to Gan Eden. Even if, unfortunately, the overall lifestyle doesn't mirror, doesn't justify inclusion in Gan Eden. person has a bris, and, and traditionally, throughout Jewish history, Baruch Hashem, it should continue this way, although there's been some erosion on the bris mila front. But even Jews who are not strictly orthodox, and today even secular Jews, still Shabbos and bris mila are two of the mitzvahs which are still zealously maintained, perhaps not in the full uh, spirit or the full halachic detail of Shabbos, but certainly the notion of Shabbos and Mirat Hashem should continue, the notion of Rismil Hashem creates even mitzvahs, not just nationalistic identities to allow for inclusion for those who unfortunately fall out of the process of strict religious observance. I think the same thing can be said about Eretz Yisrael, this bris of Eretz Yisrael, this posture of Acharei Hashem Elokeichem Telechu. Shem understood that within the religious experience there will be, so to speak, failures. There will be people who are unable to maintain religious fidelity. So Shem creates nationalism. Hashem creates basically the ability and the passion to identify with people and nation even if it's outside of the religious context. And this allows people to belong even without any religious inclusion. But they belong to the Jewish process and to the Jewish journey. And this is the precedent set already during the days of Terach. It's a precedent which repeats itself in the days of Ezra. Merit Hashem, I hope to study more closely the very intriguing process of returning to Eretz Yisrael after the abbreviated Galos of Bavel, the short Galos of Bavel. But one of the interesting moments in Sefer Ezra describing uh, the first stage of the return. Some of the people listed have strange names. B'nei Bakbuk, B'nei Chakufa, B'nei Charchur. These are not your typical Jewish names. Bakbuk in modern Hebrew means bottle. What it meant then is anyone's guess. B'nei Chakufa, Charchur. So Chazal uh, noticed these strange names. And Chazal speak about four different types of people. Those whose names are ugly and whose actions are unworthy. Those whose names are Beautiful actions are similarly attractive. Reuben, Shimon, and Levi, those whose names are impressive, but they're really deceitful. Esav and Yishmael, 
seemingly very uh, um, positive names to act, Esav to do, to perform, Yishmael to listen, and yet these are people who obviously were subversive forces in Jewish history. And the fourth category are those whose names are ugly, whose names are vile, but whose actions are glorious and heroic. And um, the Medrash in Yalkut Shimoni, not Yalkut Shimoni, it's also a Medrash um, in, uh, in Bamid Baraba, mentioning the Muraglim, whose names also suggested insurrection. Sisur, Gadi, and they were rebels. But the people, these people that ascended with Zerubavel, from Galas Bavel, to help rebuild Eretz Yisrael, the Bakbuks and Chakufas and Charchur, Shmosam Kiurim Umasehem Naim. Their names were seemingly unsuitable, but their behavior was noteworthy. Elu Ole Gola. These were the people who ascended from the Golas, B'nei Bakbuk, B'nei Charchur, V'alu Ubanu Beis Amikdash, and they built the Beis Amikdash. People who ascended during those stages of return, various stages of return, Zubavel, Ezra, Nehemia, not all those people who returned were the scholars and princes of Jewish society. Ezra performs a mass confessional because most of the people, many of the people who ascended at Teretz Yisrael with him had intermarried and expresses his shame and disgrace and asks Hashem for forgiveness. The notion that you've got sinners, people who have performed one of the most hideous sins, reflected perhaps of a general religious breakdown, but are able to express their commitment to the Jewish experience, to the return to Eretz Yisrael, and ultimately one which is an expression of commitment to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, through rebuilding and resettling the land, is not merely a theoretical precedent established through this instinct which Tarach feels and reiterated in Parshish B'chukosai, when Hashem remembers those who have committed and devoted themselves to land and the covenant of land. But it really plays an instrumental role at that historical moment in the return to Eretz Yisrael after Galus Bavel. And I think this is precisely the phenomena which we are currently experiencing. Secular Zionism, indeed, has displaced religion amongst many Jews. It was the great fear of those who rejected Zionism, and it's a fear which has come true. But historically, that replacement is not a miscarriage. It's a great tragedy, but it's not a miscarriage, but it is a divine intervention. The 19th century was one of the most unfortunate and corrosive centuries for established religion. The previous few centuries, the previous few centuries before the 19th century had witnessed the renaissance of the human spirit, the technological and industrial revolution, the discovery of modern science and medicine, of the the budding development of psychology. Humanity arose from the muck and morass of medieval history, lamenting thousands of years of stasis and stagnancy, and hurling an accusatory finger at religion and established religion as the major and main culprit of human suffering and exploitation. It was the church and its unholy alliance with state which was to blame for thousands of years of human suffering. And rapidly, the walls of established religion began to crumble 
in astonishing fashion. Some of us lived through the crumbling of the Berlin Wall, the famous Berlin Wall separating East and West Berlin, and it was just startling to see how quickly it fell. Equally startling was the pace at which religion disintegrated, established religion, during the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century, the age of the secular city, the dawning of the secular age. As religion crumbled, an ideological vacuum developed. What did people believe in? How did they orient their lives? And quickly, various movements and ideologies developed and emerged to fill this ideological vacuum. Socialism, Darwinism, Marxism, psychology, environmentalism, capitalism, fascism, various different isms. Those are some of the more prominent and mainstream and certainly many uh, side peripheral movements. Because humanity was looking for some ideological load to replace religion as the cornerstone of human identity. But the primary movement that captured the human mind, the human imagination in the 19th century, the, the, the most popular ideology, the most powerful one, was the movement of nationalism. People began to see themselves in terms of nation and less in terms of religion. The average man of the 13th century would introduce himself as follows. I'm a Catholic, and I reside in France, or I reside in Italy. I'm a Protestant, before I'm a Protestant, but I reside in England, an Englishman would say in the 17th or 18th century. I'm a Muslim. I happen to reside in Egypt. As the 19th century evolved, national identity supplanted religious identity. A person would say, I'm an Englishman and my religion is Protestantism. I'm an Egyptian, I'm a Jordanian, although nationalism was a little bit delayed in Arab countries, but it emerged in fuller force in the 20th century. I'm a Frenchman who is a Catholic. Nationalism dominated the agenda for the last three quarters of the 19th century. Ultimately, the skirmishes of 19th century Europe ultimately led to the great firefight, World War I, which was a war of nationalism in the early part of the 20th century. This process, by which the walls of established religion began crumbling, by no means skipped over the Jewish world. Just as the walls of organized religion in the dawning of the secular age ravaged established religion across the globe, it also plundered Jewish religion. Reform, conservative, Jewish scholarship, which had many, many positive contributions to Judaism, but it also had very significant detrimental impact. Jews were being slated for historical oblivion. More and more, we, we all celebrate the golden era of the yeshivas, but by and large, the yeshiva movement was a very elitist movement. A few hundred boys he tabulated all the yeshivas. How many boys actually made it to these great yeshivas of which we speak? Mark Shapiro, in his book, comments that in 1920, during the heyday of the yeshiva movement, there were more Jewish, more Jewish boys enrolled in Russian universities than there were in all the yeshivas combined. 
An enrollment in Russian university in those days was tantamount to apostasy, to heresy. People were leaving the fold in mass. And the excellence and brilliance of that generation sometimes masks the great crumbling of Jewish religion. We produce Gedolim, we produce Lomdei Torah, but for every Gadol, for every Lomdei Torah, there were seven to ten who were clearly off the derech. And there were millions and millions of Jews who were slated for historical oblivion, be lost to Jewish history. And Hashem didn't create Zionism, secular Zionism. He simply reinstated this design of his, this element of Jewish history. And he allowed Jewish nationalism, Jewish Zionism, to capture Jewish minds and Jewish hearts because classic religion would no longer capture them. This was not the age of religion. This was the age of nationalism. And it took Jewish nationalism to preserve millions and millions of Jews who otherwise would be lost to history. To create that posture of acharei, to enable the bris haaretz to maintain their presence within the Jewish experience. On a personal level, I sensed this very, very powerfully a few years ago when Ilan Ramon, Zechron Levracha, was taken from us. You may have heard me say, Ilan Ramon, Zechron Levracha. How do I say the word Zechron Levracha? About a Jew who never kept Shabbos in the classic halachic sense or other areas of Shulchan Aruch. But when Ilan Ramon flew on that shuttle, he flew with an Israeli flag attached to his lapel during a period in history in which it was not popular to be associated with the Jewish people. When he flew, he flew with a Kiddush cup, making Kiddush, because he knew that he flew on behalf of Jewish history. He demanded kosher meals because even though he never, or he classically didn't keep kosher, he saw himself as an emissary of the Jews. He took with him lists of Holocaust victims or survivors because he knew that his flight had meaning far beyond his own personal odyssey. And when he flew, for the first time in 3,000 years, since the Torah was delivered from Shemayim at Har Sinai, for the first time in 3,000 years, a Sefer Torah was returned to Shemayim. And just as it was given with fire, so unfortunately was it retaken, was it returned in fire. And Ilan Ramon, in my mind, was a poster boy, as it were, for everything, a, a, a exemplar, for everything that's beautiful and right, and should be beautiful and right, with secular Zionism. Because if it weren't for secular Zionism, it would not have been Ilan Ramon on that plane making Kiddush and carrying a Sefer Torah. It would have been probably Alan Robinson, an astronaut from Houston, who no longer had any Jewish identity to him or anything Jewish about him. A couple of pictures of some ancestors who were Jewish, but without in any way feeling and living his Jewish identity. But it wasn't Alan Robinson, it was Ilan Ramon. And it was a representative of our people, and of our nation, and of our state. And to me, that moment, and perhaps it was a tragic moment, but aside from the personal and national tragedy, it was a prophetic triumph 
to experience this flight, to remind myself that this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's scheme. This is not some sad distortion. It's unfortunate that so many Jews can no longer serve at the foothills of Har Sinai. But given that recognition, and it's a recognition that Hashem predicts at the dawn of Jewish history, and reiterates several moments through Psukim and through Midrashim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu carves out an ulterior path to be in His presence, to serve Him, to be part of Jewish history, and to be part of redemption.